sounded. Walked into all styles. Kyle drives in. Unbelievable hit. Oh! Milton has clung. Brody Grundy just put it through. You beauty. Do you like the sound of that? Australian football has a brand new home on Sirius XM. Aussie Football Rules America with Eddie Maguire. Chewie's got it in extra time. Driving back to the top of the square. Norton will Keep the goal and Fremantle win it after the siren. With unparalleled access to the AFL's greatest champions and most famous fans. Needs the score. He has kicked the goal. Lightning strikes twice. What's he doing? Security's got to get out of the way. Get out of the way. Coming to you from the home of Australian rules football in Melbourne, Australia. He's the most connected man in Aussie rules. Broadcaster, media icon, club president. Here's Eddie Maguire. Hello everyone. Welcome to Dan Patrick Radio 211 Sirius XM. This is Aussie Footy Rules America with Eddie Maguire and Brian Taylor. And then there were four. Port Adelaide and Richmond and now... Of course, Geelong take on Brisbane for a spot in the 2020 AFL Grand Final. Richmond defeating St Kilda 80-49 to by 31 points and Geelong defeating Collingwood by 68 points, 100-32. to Let's have a listen to the highlights of what was semi-final weekend 2020. Shut up. The foot is on the radio. And we're set for action. Big semi-final, ready to get underway. Umpire in the middle, ready to go. The bounce is perfect. Now Tom Lynch back in the side. Do go out. Tom Lynch stood up. And that's what the Tigers wanted this man back. The perfect start for the Tigers. Tom Lynch goes bang. Right foot ball inside forward. 50 Tui. The Irishman. Right foot ball. Zach Tui gets the Cats first. Big start by the Cats. Shea Bob picked up by Edwards. Dribble kick towards goal. The Tigers have got their second. Old Anley slaps it down the back pocket. Elliot grabs it for Collingwood. Oh. Snap from the forward pocket and the Pies are on the board. Hand pass to Dalhouse. Hand pass to Blitzarm. Real high kick to the forward pocket. And look at Danger. In front of a massive pack burn. That was incredible. Danger field. Banana kick from the boundary line. A little bit of class. Oh. A little bit of magic <laughs> from the superstar. He hands it off to Savage who... Loads up, they've had a long bomb to the goal line. And Savage has kicked one out of his skin. That's gone 60 metres, can't believe Shea it. Shea Bolt, look at the skill of that. Oh. Shea Bolt kicks a miracle goal. One of the best you'll see in a final. It was unbelievable. He's got two. To Dusty on the left. It's high. It looks really good from Dusty. There's your game. Richmond, are we heading to a prelim? He knew it was going to be for 600. 600 goals for Tommy Hawkins. Oh. Bang, have a look at that. What a player. What a way to bring up number 600 inside the last minute. The Cats have destroyed the Maggies. It's all over. And the Cats have made another preliminary final. They'll take on the Brisbane Lions here at the Gabba next there week. There is Richmond who into a fourth straight preliminary final. 31-point victors over the Saints whose season is done. There you have it, the highlights of that uh, qualifying finals weekends of football and a couple of great games. And as you said, Ed, down to the last four teams now. Now, uh, Collingwood bowed out, of course, uh, Ed, and that was uh, sad news for you and for me, of course, as Collingwood people. There's no doubt about it. But the morning after that defeat, you were put under the absolute hammer by breakfast um, TV team over here. In fact, you went a bit Theodore Roosevelt on us. Uh, Just have a listen to this. 
there's just no harm in, in, in defeat in that situation, as Theodore Roosevelt said, so that you're not with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. So we knew defeat, yes. but we knew victory the week yes. before. We've got something to build upon, OK? And that's what sport and life is all about. It's not the size of the dog in the fight, it's the size of the fight in the dog. I just want to stand up! <laughs> so stand up, OK? Well said, Don't drop well your said head. Stand well up! Said. Do not drop your head! Have a go! And in 2021, beware the wounded magpie! Woo! <laughs> uh, good stuff, Ed. Good stuff. Get trying to get him up there. Well done. I was. I was hurting inside there, Brian. Let me tell you, I was very sad. I was very sad. But having said that, the realism of the situation for Collingwood was this. We left nothing out there. We put it all on the line against the West Coast Eagles. The boys came back. Didn't sleep well the first couple of days. Talked themselves up that they were ready to go. Went out and went bang straight into the Geelong side who were ready and the ambush was on. They were sensational, Geelong. So no accolades taken away from them. They deserve everything they received as far as what they've been able to do to put themselves into another preliminary final. So congratulations to the Geelong Football Club. Collingwood, regardless of what was going on, it was always going to be a battle and a year of attrition. And when uh, the third last game of the season came up, we weren't up to it to win. So the top four teams of the year have finished up in the semi-finals, the preliminary finals now, and that's what uh, is deserved to both of those teams. Now, Brian, you're in isolation at the moment, mate. Tell me what it's like. Yes. You, you've been in isolation, uh, built down for two weeks so that you can call the preliminary final this weekend and also the grand final. Congratulations. The Channel 7 have anointed you and Bruce McAvaney as the chief callers of the last three biggest games of the year, the two preliminary finals and the grand final, which is a tremendous feather in your cap. And I know how much that means to you as a, as a caller who's you know really made his own career. Congratulations to you, first of all. Uh, good on you, Ed. Thanks a lot. Yeah, it's a delight to know that you're going to call the last three games, the biggest three games of the year. That is fantastic. But as you say, I'm still in quarantine here at the moment. I've got three or four days to go. I'm on the Gold Coast in Queensland, and uh, I get out on the Thursday night. Are you at me with me at the Darling Hotel at the Star, the magnificent penthouse that we've got here? With the, like, what's, the the be, pool? what's the best feature of where you are, Ed? Well, well the breakfast is unbelievable upstairs uh, next to the Horizon Pool, and uh, the, the Japanese restaurant downstairs is magnificent. Uh, oh, it, it's just, been, you know, it, it's wonderful. The room service that comes up here, Brian, it, it's, it's quite incredible. In fact, I'm going to have to slow down a bit. I'm starting to put on too much weight. I have to go for a walk along the beach every day now and then go and have more lunch and maybe some dinner afterwards. That <laughs> similar sort of situation with you, is it? Uh, no, Ed, I'm in quarantine, not allowed to walk out the door at all. And um, I get a packet of uh, cornflakes in a little tiny box for breakfast and uh, it gets delivered at precisely two minutes past eight every day. And I've just had a, had, had a gut full of it. Can't wait to get out of here. Three days to go. So much uh, do I want to get out of here that I am leaving at one minute past midnight on Thursday. So Thursday, it ticks midnight. I'm allowed out one minute past midnight. I'm leaving at one minute past midnight, jumping in a car, going to Brisbane and then going to Adelaide that day to call the game in Adelaide. So I uh, can't wait to get out of here. It's been hard. I, I literally have not been out the door. So you can imagine what it's like for the teams that are out of the out of the action now. Yeah. Uh, Brian, there's been a little bit of action going on with the Western Bulldogs team after they were put out. And unfortunately, they're sharing a resort with the Richmond Football Club. And here's a little bit of social media that came from Jack Higgins, the Richmond player's girlfriend, Tanisha Crook. Have a listen to what was going on. She was woken up by some rowdy bulldogs. I opened my door shortly because I heard some moving around and I saw the security guard 
I said, hey, can you hear that music? It's really loud. We can hear it right through our walls, blah, 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 blah. Because I could still hear the music after he told them off. He said, yeah, we just told them off to turn their music down. Little losers have turned it up louder in spite of this. I didn't go off about something like this, but Richmond and Geelong are training for their finals that are in two or three days. They'll be doing their final session of training that is extremely important for a final. And these idiots, just because they've gotten knocked out, are treating it like a western suburbs nightclub. Like, how selfish can you be? Just literally go on your flight back to Footscray, where the f*** you live. Just makes me so mad. <laughs> now, Brian, can you ever guess at maybe who might have been the ringleader, or the alleged ringleader of uh, said party of the Western Bulldogs? Yep, Tom Liberatore. <laughs> he might have been there. I think Bailey Smith might have had a bit of a hand in the action uh-huh. as well, Brian. So there's there's a little bit of an investigation going into what's going on there. But uh, she's quite right in saying that, though. Um, I, I remember the, uh, the week before, the uh, Essendon Football Club uh, rang me up and said, we will finish up this weekend and we're still in the hotel for another week. And we know that you're preparing for the last game and your first week of the finals. We promise you that we will not have any parties and we'll get out of there as soon as we possibly can. And that was uh, that came from their CEO, Xavier Campbell, which I was very gratified. And they lived up to their word. They had, you know, they had a few drinks, obviously, but didn't disturb the pies at all. But uh, you know, the dogs uh, that were there with Richmond and the uh, Geelong Football Clubs, they partied on. Maybe Dustin Martin should have gone up and just knocked on the door and said, boys, turn it down a touch. Yeah, exactly. He would have uh, <laughs> caught their surprise and attention, I'm sure. But <laughs> something I never thought of, I must have admit never thought of it hey brian good luck to you uh, over the next uh, fortnight uh, i sincerely say this to you mate you have turned yourself into one of the great entertainers in australia and in world sport your calling is accurate it's got plenty of excitement it's got plenty of color and uh, as a viewer and a watcher and a lover of our sport i couldn't wish for a better bloke to be behind the microphone for the biggest three games of the year so good luck with all that Hey everybody, this is Fran Freshella, host of the podcast World of Basketball. The game of basketball has truly become a global game. Markovic fires it into Mickey, and somehow it goes in. Each week, I talk with the players, coaches, and executives who have led the way in growing the game of basketball around the world. Real Madrid have stolen victory from the jaws of defeat. Episodes are available every Thursday on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, and Apple Podcasts. Darren Cale is the son of John Cale, better known as Jack Cale. He coached Collingwood for a while, but he is a legend of Port Adelaide. Darren Cale, who was a handy footballer in his own right, took on the world in tennis, became a top 25 player, sadly really wrecked his knee, and then went on to become one of the great tennis coaches. Have a listen to what Andre Agassi had to say about Darren Cale. Darren's a special person in my life, unquestionably. He was... uh single-handedly responsible for the second half of my career being uh, arguably better than my first half and you know I think he he came along in my life at a time when I needed somebody to help me um, make sense of the balancing act that takes place between uh, growing family and a different phase in life and also attempting to be the best in the world he's he's as smart as they come uh, regarding the tennis he's as uh, practical as it comes regarding uh, decision making and you know, and he's as loyal as it comes. You know, uh, regarding being a being a friend, and they just it just meeting him and having him part of my tennis is was the start of a 
of a, of a beautiful you know, relationship together that still thrives and continues. Welcome to the show, Darren Kale. You couldn't get a better introduction than that from anybody. That was the great Andre Agassi. And you were part of the resurrection of Andre's career, as he uh, so eloquently put there. Welcome to the show, first of all, Darren. Eddie and BT, thanks for having me. Right, let's, let's stick on the tennis for a moment before we swing to the football. What was it like as a coach and what mindset do you go in when you've got a player like Andre Agassi, who had all the controversy around him? He was a hothead on the court. He was married to Brooke Shields. He had a wig. He had all sorts of things going on in his life. And then somehow you were able to calm all that madness in his head. When you read his book, it's quite incredible about what was going on. How, did you, how were you able to tame that beast and then put him on a path to glory? Yeah, it's, it's a good question because I think something like that takes a lot of time and I had to spend quite a bit of time with him. We initially had a six-week trial and you just went through a couple of the things regarding Andre's life there. Remember also he's married to Steffi Graf when yeah. I first started with him. So walking in through the front door of his house, the very first time he asked me to come over and do a six-week trial, I'm walking into a house that got 29 Grand Slam singles <laughs> trophies. So 22 with Steph and seven with Andre. And my wife actually on the flight, we were flying across there and she looked across to me and she, she said, uh, what in the hell are you supposed to teach this all-time legend? <laughs> I said, it's a bloody good question, actually. So look, I, we did a six-week trial. It, it went really well. Uh, he's part Aussie with his mindset, the way he thinks. He loves Australia. That's why he's always done so well down in Australia. He won that title four times. He loves the way Aussies speak. You know, there's nothing better than him than cooking a barbecue and having a beer. So uh, he's very Australian down to earth. In fact, he actually came to Australia as a 15-year-old protege and played a, a couple of events in Sydney and Adelaide. So he had a great time that, down there. He swept those tournaments. So I knew him playing against him. I knew him coaching against him because I'd done three or four years on the road with Leighton Hewitt. And one of my best mates, in fact, on the tour all those years was Brad Gilbert, who was his coach at that time. So when Brad and he decided to part ways after eight years, Andre gave me a call and said, jump on a plane, come across and let's see whether or not this can work. And I, I didn't know if it was going to last six weeks or six years. And in the end, it was the latter. So it was the best education that I had from a coaching perspective. I think he taught me more than I taught him, but incredibly professional. And as he said, we were lucky enough for him to win another major tournament and go back to number one, one in the world. Did you feel that that six weeks, Darren, was enough for you to be able to instill your way and show him that that was something that he should get hold of? Not really, BT. I think that six weeks was more about learning from him and understanding him more as a person, not so much as a tennis player, because the X's and O's I knew pretty well. I knew what he was capable of doing on the tennis court, but you've got to get to understand what's going through a player's head. And one of the things we always talk about as tennis coaches is you can't coach two players the same way. And you can't also coach through your eyes. So I may have had a perspective on the way he played tennis, but you have to understand why he makes certain decisions on the court before you can change the way he plays. So that takes some time. And I think the one thing that he appreciated with me was I came in and I didn't kind of boss him around and tell him to play a certain type of style of tennis, that I took the time to ask him a lot of questions, understand his game. And then slowly over the next six months, we worked on certain parts of his game and it all came together pretty well. So I think he appreciated the patience more than anything. And the fact that he was 32 years of age when we started, I wasn't in a rush to make big changes to his game. And he was always doing incredibly professional with the work off the court. So I knew mentally, as long as he still enjoyed the game, 
and he was willing physically to do the work that we had plenty of time. So let's go from how you coach Andre Agassi. As I mentioned, he was married to Brooke Shields. He dated Barbara Streisand at one stage. He's from <laughs> Las Vegas. He has climbed the mountain many times by the time you're there. He's married to Steffi Graf, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How do you then coach a, a young Leighton Hewitt? By the way, Andre Agassi was the oldest number one at that stage ever to get to number one. And then you had Leighton Hewitt, who was the youngest number one player in the world, a boy from Adelaide who was as raw as it comes, um, had absolutely no international lifestyle skills, if you like. He was just a tennis player from Adelaide. What was that like? He was still travelling with his mum and dad, far less dating Barbara Streisand. So uh, how did you get inside his head and set it up? Well, I worked with Leighton since he was 12 years of age. So Leighton was actually preceding Andre. And that was an incredible experience because I'd hit with a bunch of the Adelaide players. And then when he knocked on my front door, he had this... Agassi hat backwards. He had a racket bag with it, about eight bags. He had the long shorts like Agassi. He was 12 years of age. And he walked in and basically wanted to kick my ass the very first day we played on the court. So <laughs> what you see now throughout his career and the come-ons and that intensity on the court, he had it at 12 years of age. So with him, it was more about, it wasn't about firing up. It wasn't about inspiring him. It was more about teaching him the X's and O's and what type of shot to play from what position in the court. So it was a lot more strategic. And funnily enough, when I finished with Andre, he was, tw- uh, sorry, when I finished with Leighton, he was 21 years of age. Then I got the call from Andre to go over and work with him. Walking into Tiburon where he was living, we had a, a dinner and he put on sort of a welcome dinner for me as well. And, and there was Huey Lewis from Huey Lewis in the news. Um, uh, Robin Williams was there with his wife, Marsha Williams at the time. There, there was like four or five celebrities and you've just ripped off a few celebrities that Andre's been in his life. And these are normal friends to him. And there was about 12 people around this big table and we're all having a great time. He's given me a couple of beers and a couple of margaritas and he's cooking steaks for everyone. And halfway through the dinner, and I had a bit of a buzz on because I'm drinking these margaritas. <laughs> halfway during the dinner, he sort of taps his glass and makes a welcome to both myself and Victoria as part of the family now, and then I'm, come, I'm coming across to, to work with him in his tennis game. And he says, that, I only have one question for you, Darren, and I want you to tell me and everybody here around this table, how do I beat Leighton Hewitt? And the table went quiet. And, and under the table, my wife is kicking me in the shins. Don't bloody stuff up this answer. <laughs> and so for about 10 or 15 minutes, I had to give him a breakdown of Leighton's game, what troubled him when Leighton played Andre, what Andre could probably do better in that matchup. So that transition from Leighton going through to Andre was actually a pretty natural one because they were both competitors at that time. And I think Leighton in 2001 finished the year as the number one player in the world and Andre was the number one, the number three player in the world. So they'd already had a great rivalry. So the transition was pretty comfortable. So it's amazing. You had a fired-up young Aussie, Tyro, 12 years of age. You take him to number one. You take over a prince of the court in Andre Agassi. You get him back to number one. And then you uh, hook up with Simone Halep. And here's what she had to say when you took her to the top of the mountain. Uh, my team, of course, uh, you are working every day with me. Uh, Theo, Marianne, Daniel, Virginia, thank you. Darren, of course, a very special person. Uh, he came to support me and uh, I have no words to thank you and because of you I have learned how to be a better person on court. Thank you very much. Simona Halep, uh, tell us about uh, the women's side of, uh, of coaching and the women's side of tennis. 
Yeah, honestly, Eddie, not much different, to be honest. I think the professionalism of the female tennis players is something to be admired and they deserve everything they get. And she's really tried to eat the most out of her career and her game. She's five foot five and a half, five foot six. Um, tennis, as you know, has become a bigger person sport. Most of the male players, if you go back to Rod Laver and Kenny Rosewall and those types of players, they're five foot eight, five foot nine. Um, even in my day, the tall players really didn't exist. And now six foot two is kind of middle height. And, and the better players are above that, six five, six six. And they're all great movers, great athletes. But it's been remarkable what she's been able to accomplish and how good she is from a mental strength point of view. And the pressure she's been under in Romania to fulfill her potential. And she has a whole country that's been riding her to win a Grand Slam and to get to that number one ranking in the world. So I kind of lived that with her for those three or four years. And it was a rocky road. She lost a few finals getting there. And I saw the pain and the suffering she went through in those matches. A couple of those matches, she had real chances to win. And as they say, sometimes the most beautiful destinations have the rockiest roads to get there. And there's no question, I've said this before, and there's no question that day when I think it was 2018, when she won the French Open, that particular day was the most fulfilling day for me as a coach and a player that I've ever been through. Just to know the journey she was on, to know the effort that she put in, to know how hard she had to fight to win that major. You know, it still kind of chokes me up a little bit thinking about it, mm. but I have nothing but admiration and for the courage and strength that she showed. So that, that to me was an amazing journey from a coaching perspective. And it still continues because I'm still working with Simona now. Darren, stick with us, mate. That's a lot of tennis talk and we love it. And we're going to take a break now and come back and talk AFL football because you're a board member of your beloved Port Adelaide Football Club. As I mentioned at the intro, your father, just one of the greatest Port Adelaide identities in the history of the club, a club that is 150 years old this year. Hey, everyone. This is Lisa Ann, and I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, The Lisa Ann Experience. This is my chance to share with you my experiences, past and present, including how I went from living in the fantasy world of adult films to talking fantasy sports on Sirius XM. Each week, I'll introduce you to some of the people I've met on my journey and invite friends on to help me read through the endless ridiculousness that lands in my inbox. New episodes are available every Wednesday on the Sirius XM app and Apple Podcasts. What did football mean to you growing up with your father just being one of the greatest figures in the game in South Australia? Everything. You have no idea. It's The club means everything to me as well. And I didn't miss a game for the first 16 years that Port Adelaide played in the SANFL. So wow. I still have visions and memories and the smell of walking into that locker room at Alberton, uh, hearing the Scottish bagpipes playing every Sunday morning. And that when they stopped, that was the cue for the guys to go out and get involved in the training. Um, hanging around the locker rooms with some of the legends of the sport like Russell Liebert and Bomber Clifford and Brian Cunningham and Brucey Light. I can go through all the old players of that team. And, and so for me, being involved in football back then and seeing the culture of the Port Adelaide Football Club was a life learning experience. But also watching my dad and the way he went about coaching those guys. I don't have great memories of him playing. He finished in 73, I believe was or 72 was his last game. So I was about seven or eight years of age. Um, I have a few memories of uh, after the games, being with him in the locker room, but I have all my memories of him coaching and feeling that pressure of trying to live up to the Port Adelaide expectations of 
existing to win premierships. And they struggled for a while. They, they won one in 65. I was born on 2nd of October, 1965. And in that particular day, Port Adelaide played Sturt in the grand final. And my dad played in that grand final. And then he ended up going to, to coach them. I think he started in about 75. And they ended up coming through in 77 and winning that premiership. And I remember that as one of the greatest days. I can still remember the match. Uh, Timmy Evans saved us. He kicked three or four goals. A uh, former Geelong player early in that game against Glenelg kept us in it till halftime. And then we ran away with the match after halftime. What was your memories of your dad going to Collingwood, leaving South Australia as a hero? Coming over to Collingwood was controversial. It's the first time ever that a non-VFL player had coached the Collingwood Football Club. Certainly, I think it might have been the first time uh, that had coached full stop in the VFL. It was a radical move by the Collingwood Football Club at that stage to bring your dad in. And he had success, but uh, not the ultimate success. Uh, what, what, was the, what was the family's memory of the Collingwood experience? Oh, we were pumped incredibly excited and as you know eddie most of the port adelaide supporters back in those days were yeah. collingwood supporters crossing exactly. the VFL. So and vice versa we, yeah yeah and we still love collingwood uh, you'll find that most of the port adelaide people have a, a soft spot for collingwood and for him to go over there yeah, i know they want to wear our jumper all the time <laughs> we can get in there a bit later if you want but, <laughs> uh, look, i have nothing but great memories of, of victoria park one of the reasons i actually became a decent player was because of the two years that i spent at victoria park in fact more than that i got to know gubby allen who you know really well at victoria park and i spent maybe four or five years at victoria park training with ray giles every morning yeah. and ray giles was the fitness and strength trainer back then and and he was an animal in the gym and I needed it because I was a bit of a late developer. But for him to go over there and coach Collingwood, it was like a lifelong dream come true. And I actually spoke to him last night. We were talking about it. We don't talk about those two years very often, but he took them from last to sixth. They just missed out in the finals in the first year. And then they made a prelim final coming third in the second year. But my, I swear you not, my dad's words to me, if they had an Eddie Maguire as the president back in my day, I would have stayed. So he basically thinks that the club was a bit of a shambles. On the field, it was, it was fine with the yeah, players, but off the field, it was a shambles. And it all starts with the board and the management. And he said they didn't have their stuff in gear. And he felt Port Adelaide back in those days were much better served with Bobby McLean and Brucey Weber and the type of people they had at Port Adelaide were much stronger. And the organisation around the team was much better in the SNFL than what Collingwood was back in those days. So that's it kind was, of why yeah. So what about Port Adelaide now, Darren, in the national competition and this year have been on top of the ladder from rounds one through to round 18? What, what have you made of them this year? Well, the difference well, is I Darren Cale's on the board. It's as simple as that. Yep. Brian, come on, mate. It's right in front of us here. He is the difference. <laughs> I wish I could say that, Eddie, but BT, <laughs> I think it's been a few years in the making for the guys. And I think Kenny Hinckley has put the wheels in motion three or four years ago. And I, if we had an hour, I could talk about uh, the changes that have been made in the last three or four years. But I think it comes down to everybody getting together to putting the, the chairman or the president on the same path as the CEO, on the same path as the coach and the football manager. And if you've got those four pillars that are all working together, then you've got a real chance to be successful. And that's happened at Port Adelaide. And, and some people have had to give up a little bit of turf to get to that area. But I think now everybody's talking the same language. We're not speaking about making the finals as a pass or a failure mark anymore. We're existing to win premierships. And I think you guys remember Kenny coming out earlier this year, our coach, and basically saying, you know what? It's our 150th year. We're here to give this premiership a shake. We're going to do our best to try to take this trophy home. And he copped a little bit of flack about that earlier in the year. But that's what we want to hear as Port Adelaide people. You don't have to win it every year. 
but you just have to attempt to give it your best shot. So I think we've raised the bar of our expectations and the players have responded and the clubs have responded as a whole. Ken Hinckley, in some ways, this year's, I think, transpired beautifully for him because he's got almost the perfect conditions. No one can get in and driving mad in Adelaide. He's got his own hub over there. Uh, the Adelaide Crows have been on the bottom of the ladder, so they're out of the way as well. So <laughs> everything's going well. He's got his own team that no one can... He's, he's able to quarantine them in his own bubble, so he's got full control, and he flies in and flies out on hit-and-run missions or gets uh, people to turn up at Adelaide Oval, and you've cranked the, Ad, uh, the Port Adelaide crowd up again. It's, it's really just been a nice setup for a 150th year attempt at a premiership. You know what really made a bit of a difference as well, and I'm not sure if you've had one of these dinners, Collingwood, I'm sure you have, but we had our 150th celebration dinner earlier in the year. I think it was in February. So it was like a 1,000 people packed into a huge room. And so every former Port Adelaide player through the SANFL and also those players in the AFL that represented Port Adelaide came to that dinner. So the current players had a chance to, to mix with everyone from Port Adelaide, everyone that's living. And at the end of the night, Everybody that played a single game with Port Adelaide got onto the stage and had a huge photo. And I've never played a game with Port Adelaide and I've had some success in my field of tennis, but I had the hairs on my arms standing up, watching all these players stand up there and be proud to have represented Port Adelaide and to wear the prison bar jumper and to wear the black, white and teal jumper. And, and that moment to me captured what Port Adelaide was all about. And so for the current players to actually feel that and sense the history of the club, I think it made a big difference to them. And they've gone on to the, the park this year or the ground this year, and they've played with a sense of pride that maybe they haven't had before because they understand who they're representing and the players of the past. So I, it was a magical experience. You know, I wish we could do it every year, but unfortunately we don't have 150th every year. But as you guys know, this year for everyone with COVID has been a year of resilience and our players have really been resilient and it's, we're proud of what they've achieved so far and hopefully they can go further. That's a good point you make there, Darren. We, we did one in our 125th and uh, Brian was there, obviously, as a great of the Collingwood Football Club. And uh, I, I agree with you. It was, I think it was the greatest night I've ever had in uh, football. It was just sensational. And what was the, uh, really marked for me was the amount of people who played one game or a couple of games who came up and... Well, they, they, they did something that I dreamt of doing. They played a game of football. Now, they didn't reach the heights of Brian Taylor, for example, who kicked 100 goals in a season. But uh, they also then felt like they didn't do enough to be seen as a Collingwood player. And on this night when they were embraced, and what was I thought the most touching was it was Brian Taylor who would go up and shake their hand. I oh, remember, yeah, we, we did pre-season together, or Peter Moore, or Bill Picken, or you know these greats of the club, Wayne Richardson, Peter McKenna. You know, uh, you know, and the modern day players going up to these guys and going, well, you're, you're, you're my brother. You, you played and spilt blood for the black and white of Collingwood. I think those nights, Ed, that you both spoke about there, you know, Ed, for instance, I think at Collingwood, there's only about 1,200 players that have represented the club. And I imagine in 100 years, Darren, it would be similar at Port yeah. Adelaide. So there's actually not that many of you that have done something pretty significant and play at least one game for a uh, club at the elite level. BT, I promise you that night, if I could have swapped everything that I've done in tennis and stood on that stage, having said that I played one game for the Port Adelaide Football Club, I would have done it. Yeah. That's how special that moment meant to me. You're right. It's the magic of football. And when you hear somebody you know, who's had so much uh, career success as Darren Cale talk about the thing that infects you about this game. And, uh, yeah. you know, Brian, as, you know, I, I was standing there that night uh, having not played a game 
just being yep. a, a, a lover of football, a lover of the game that's given me so much. You know, probably I'm one of the luckiest people involved in football to have not played a game and have been able to get so much out of it and to, you know, be president. But you're of, almost the longest serving president, Ed, or are you the longest serving now? Uh, somebody told me the other day, Brian, that I'm uh, two games short of becoming the longest serving president wow. in the history of football. <laughs> so there you go. After the uh, display we had on uh, on Saturday, though, I don't know if I get those two games. I might get the, the Tijuana. But uh, it's certainly something that is that uh, is deep inside us. What would it mean for you to finish up on, Darren, for Port Adelaide to win the next two matches and be the premiers in the 150th year? I think for the members it would be something pretty special. Um, not necessarily for me or the people involved, for the players, for the coaches, for the members, for those people that are blood, sweat and tears into the club. I think that it's what you dream of. And there are 18 teams. As you know, it's incredibly competitive competition, incredibly professional competition. I, part of my reason with being on the board is to be a bit of a link between the high performance and the board and to let the board people understand exactly what the coaching team is going through, what the players are going through and to get that messaging right, which sometimes we can stuff up <laughs> being on a board as, as well. And I think that we've got that messaging right at the moment, both Gavin Wanganine, who's a former legend player of the club as well, was brought in for that very reason. But I think what Port Adelaide's been through, uh, even in the last 25 years, trying to get into the AFL, finally getting into the AFL. We had some success in 2004 with Mark Williams. Yeah, it would be a special moment. But for me, put yourself in a position to give yourself a chance of winning. Collingwood has been so good at that over the years. You guys have made finals and you've had a crack at it. You haven't quite got there in recent years, but you're always giving yourself a chance. And that's why I respect Richmond. That's why I respect Geelong. Brisbane have backed it up two years in a row. Uh, the great clubs find ways to make it happen. And that's what we aspire to be, is a great club in the AFL. So we'll keep working hard towards that. And the other great thing I think about football is it gives you little moments throughout the course of the year that are special and that we talk about. And, and even for our club, Port Adelaide, at the start of the year, I mentioned our 150th dinner. But one of the other things Chris Davies, our football manager, did at the start of the year was he brought back some of our old coaches. So he put in a room all the current players, all the current coaches with Ken Hinckley. And then he sat at the front of the room, Mark Williams, Matthew Primus, and my dad, Jack Cahill. And the three of them had a chance to talk about the history of Port Adelaide and talk about what playing for Port Adelaide meant to them. And hopefully that was going to bleed through to the players. So I think those little moments make an enormous difference and they're life-changing moments for just sitting there and listening to these guys talk. And that's what sport brings you. And that's what football in Australia brings us, the, the people that live and die by it. So uh, it's a great, as you know, I can speak about football all day long. I love tennis, but football has been my main sport. That's what I was born into, a football family. Uh, I just, too slow, too soft to be able to play the game. So I chose tennis and, and here we are. Darren, congratulations, mate, on a, a lifetime of success, a huge family in the history of Australian rules football, but particularly the Port Adelaide Football Club. And we wish you all the best. And we might have a chat to you afterwards. Uh, uh, Simona Halep uh, winning was a special moment for you. Andre Agassi going to number one. Leighton Hewitt going to number one. And let's not forget your own career, which was, as I said, derailed by knee injury just when you're starting to break into the top 10 and become a dominant player in the game itself. Doesn't matter. You pivoted and have been a lifelong success. So congratulations, mate. And thanks for being part of our show today.
Hey everyone, this is former NFL linebacker and current SiriusXM NFL radio host, Kirk Morrison. And I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, Total Coverage. Each week, I'll be joined by some of the greatest minds in the game as we explore the hows and the whys behind the week's biggest results. Whether we're breaking down player techniques, game plans, or coaching philosophies, we'll explain the details that define our favorite performances. New episodes will be available every Tuesday on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, and Apple Podcasts. He's a superhero and he's a super bloke as well. And he stars on Channel 7's commentary of the AFL alongside Brian Taylor, Matthew Richardson, Richmond superstar. Welcome to our show in America. Good on you, Richo. Thanks for having me, Eddie. I could have uh, just listened to that all day, mate. But great to join you and great to be going out to America. That's fantastic. Well, Matthew, I think it's also good to sometimes, you know, after your career's over and you've been calling everyone else for a while now to, to listen back to some of those things. Could you remember any of those goals in your mind's eye when you're listening to the commentary? I think the one that uh, sticks in my mind because it was a major stuff up really was the one that you called Eddie against Hawthorne at the MCG. When you're six foot five, you shouldn't try and bounce the ball because it doesn't come back to you sometimes. And (laughs) I remember uh, running into an open goal and I thought, geez, I'm going to need to have a bounce here. And I don't reckon I had more than 10 bounces in my career. And it didn't come back to me. And I thought I'd mucked it up. And fortunately, somehow I got my foot to the ball as Johnny Hay tackled me. So, yeah, that that one's funny because it's a bit of a stuff up. But then in the end, it turned out all right with a goal. What about this 800 goals in a 282-game career and has still holds the record for the most number of goals on the mighty MCG, the Melbourne Cricket Ground, three-time All-Australian, Australian Football Hall of Fame, Tasmanian Team of the Century, 13 times Richmond leading goal kicker, Richmond Team of the Century, and as I said, 464 goals of that 800 on the MCG. No one has kicked more goals on the Citadel of football than Matthew Richardson. Yeah, I was just going to mention the 800 goals, Ed, and uh, Richo, that, that put you puts you into one of the greatest of all time in terms of goals kicked. I mean, the most in our game is, is just over 1,200 goals. So uh, reflecting back now and thinking, gee, I, I, in the 282 games in the 16 or 17 years that I played football, I was able to kick 800 goals. Does it have any impact on, on you at all, or is it just a blur? As you know, BT, it goes pretty quickly, doesn't it? I mean, I've been retired for 11 years now, and I think, geez, where's all, well, where's all that time gone? Well, your footy career sort of goes pretty quickly as well. I guess, you know, you look back at your career and there's a lot of numbers and, and stats and all that sort of thing, but I, w- I will be honest, I am happy with one of those stats, and it is that MCG one, because it is the, the Coliseum here. It's the it's the home of football for, for us, I guess, particularly in Victoria, and, you know, just to play there every second week for Richmond was was such a thrill as you know running out there you know every week you'd, you look around and you certainly don't take it for granted so I'm pretty happy with that stat about the MCG. And to play with one of the biggest teams Richard as you say in our Coliseum the MCG the biggest stadium in Australia what was it like 
to run out with that full most of the time you played. You know, it would, would have ranged anywhere from 60 to 90,000 or 60 to 100,000 people every time the Tigers trot out there. What was that like? Oh, it was incredible, BT. And look, I guess growing up as a kid, I'd, I grew up in a place called Tasmania, a little little island. And I'd come over here on school holidays and stay at my nan's house in, in Cheltenham and we'd get on the train there and come in and watch Richmond play at the MCG. And I remember back then as a kid walking into the ground with everyone with their colours on coming off the train. And, and you just think, how how amazing is this? It didn't seem sort of real as a kid. It was so surreal. So then to get to, to play on that ground, yeah, it was just incredible. Every time you ran out there, you, you know, you would get the goosebumps and the hair standing up literally on the back of your neck. And, and when it's got 80,000 people in there, the, the noise is, is incredible. And it, it takes you to a, another place, I guess, with your adrenaline and your energy. It's just something you'll, you'll probably never replicate again in your life, that sort of feeling. So, yeah, certainly never took it for granted. And, yeah, it's just a feeling you, you never get again. I mean, even when you commentate there now, and there's 95,000, it's amazing. But to actually be the, the people out there putting on the show, yeah, incredible memories. So, Richo, just, just on the crowd thing, because we've had the experience this year of no crowds, and there's been yeah. this sort of debate raging a little about whether players draw anything from the fact that there's 80 or 90,000 people in the house. I think, I would think we've proven conclusively that player efforts do rise with crowds. Absolutely. BT. I mean, it's hard to describe, but when you're out there in that noise, it just it just goes through your body and it, it does lift you to be able to do things on the ground that you probably wouldn't be able to do with no crowd there. And I remember doing the first game of this year, a Thursday night game, Richmond and Carlton, and I was sitting on the boundary line for Channel 7. And when the teams ran out, I just there was just nothing. It was echoing around the ground. And I actually thought that day, how are these players going to do this for the rest of the year? Because you, you do use the crowd to, to feed off and to get your energy, and it, it takes you to another level with your football. So when people criticise games this year for, for maybe not stacking up as a spectacle, you've got to take that into account. And um, I don't think you should make any rash decisions off the back of that, because I think once we get back to full crowds in the next, hopefully next year, you know, I think the game automatically goes up another level. And you've, you've seen in the back half of this year in the finals. When the crowds are there, the games are better. Now, Richard, you mentioned you come from Tasmania, uh, but you also were steeped in Richmond tradition. Your father, Alan Bull Richardson, played in the Premiership side in 1967 for the, the Richmond Football Club. I was lucky enough, I don't know if you remember this, Richard, but I did the story with you the day that you actually were presented with your first jumper on the back of a flatbed truck at Punt Road. And uh, I remember I was uh, reporting for Channel 10, I think, back in those days. And uh, Cameron Schwab came up to me and said, oh, how about this? We've got this young bloke coming out. It's Bull Richardson's son. And you stood up there, this young kid, uh, and it's just been wonderful. I have that, this great memory. And, you know, we all, everyone in football loves Richard. But I was lucky enough, Brian, that I, I got him early doors and sort of watched his career as it unfolded in front of me. And it's, it was a tremendous journey for somebody who didn't barrack for the Tigers to just watch you in action and then to see you become not only one of the greatest players of all time, but also one of the most loved people. It's actually been a joy to watch, mate. Congratulations. Hey. And oh, you did thanks. just wander out of the wilderness down there, Richo. You came straight out of the mountains from Cavie. Yeah. Just from camping on some river. I did. I did. I, I remember getting uh, coming to Melbourne for the first time on the Abel Tasman it was back then. It wasn't the spirit of Tasmania. I put the 1979 VB Commodore on the Abel Tasman and, and got off down there in Port Melbourne and 
absolutely had no idea how I was going to find my way to Richmond. It took me about three hours. I took that many wrong turns. But yeah, I do remember that night, Ed, and thanks for those words. And hasn't footy changed? That was a Thursday night after training, yeah. uh, before the round one game. We had our jumper presentation. It was literally, they just pulled out a, a flat tray truck onto Punt Road. There were probably 100 supporters that had come in on a Thursday night and and watched us get our jumpers. Now they're, you know, of course, you'd have a big event at, at the casino or something now, and there'd yeah. be a thousand people there. But yeah, it was great. I remember Dad giving me my jumper, and he wore number 12, and I had the number 12. And then we went in under the grandstand there at the Punt Road Oval, the Jack Dyer stand, and had a photo in, in front of the locker. And yeah, really good memory to look back on. And Richo, they were tough times for the Tigers. And, uh, you know, you're the hope of the side for, for so long. And you look at players like uh, even Jack Watts in recent times at Melbourne and later at Port Adelaide. Number one draft pick, you know, was going to be the big next big thing and just didn't quite have the... It couldn't quite get there for whatever reasons. Um, did you feel the pressure or did you enjoy the fact that uh, this was your your position in life and then suddenly, you know, you know, you had injuries along the way, you did your knee and different things, but you kept going and kept going and I, I really respect what you did for Richmond because it was the tough times. Now that they're winning premierships, of course, the glory days are back, but you kept them going and kept the crowds turning up when no one really much, you know, Richmond didn't really have anything to stand on. Yeah, they weren't they weren't great years, that's for sure, particularly early doors when I arrived, they just sort of Two years before I got to Richmond, they'd had almost went bankrupt. They had the Save Our Skins campaign with our rattling tins, literally rattling tins on, on Punt Road and around the suburbs to, to get enough money to survive. So, yeah, they were they were hard times, but I, I never felt pressure to perform, I guess. I, I mean, the most pressure I ever had was pressure I put on myself. So it didn't really matter what other people thought because I always had high expectations of myself and, and wanted to, you know, have a long career. So... Yeah, never felt too much pressure from the outside, but I reckon I didn't really work out the formula to to know what it was to play really consistent footy week in, week out until I was about 29. I went off and did a sort of a, a leadership course on my own, a one-on-one leadership course for six months over the summer of that year, heading into my 30s, and I sort of just worked out what was important and stopped worrying about other other aspects of the game that weren't important. And I actually played my most consistent footy in my last five seasons, which looking back now, I wish I had to work that out a bit earlier because I had a more ups and downs in my first 10 years than I did in my last sort of half a dozen. So I probably didn't have the highs, the, the spectacular games, but I didn't have the lows either. I just worked out what I needed to do to, to play consistently in my 30s. And that was probably a time I enjoyed my footy more than, more than anything. And just before we let you go, Richo, uh, last week's game, it's the featured match here on Triple M on Sirius XM, and that is uh, the Richmond versus St Kilda game. There were a couple of nervous moments early on. Saints were going okay, but uh, the Tigers just too strong in the end. Yeah, look, I guess going into that game, you looked at it and you, you thought Richmond should win the game with, with Paddy Ryder being out of the team and with Jake Carlisle missing with his uh, the birth of his uh, third child and and also young Ben Long being suspended. You looked at that and you thought the Richmond should be favourites and, and they, that's the way the game ended up panning out. It was a, a good win, as I, as I said. It gave some uh, yeah, continuity to a few players that were injured in Prestia and Edwards who hadn't played a lot this year. And Yeah, they got the job done in the end.